right? Why are men so violent against women? Why do men need to have all of the power in certain spaces and feel so threatened when they don't have it? Why are men creating destructive patterns in society and systems that, that, you know, fragment us from each other and from the earth? Well, I don't think it's because men are bad. I think it's because men have been so disconnected from what is actually so good about them. I'm right and you're wrong. Once you start labeling people, categorizing of humans and ideas, you have desensitized yourself to the humanity of that other human being, to who they really are. And in the marketplace of ideas, these things are complicated, man. We all need to engage with a variety of viewpoints. A genuine multicultural connection with another. I mean, sometimes you don't need to agree or disagree. You just need to sit with it and digest. This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by Divine Echoes, reconciling prayer with the uncontrolling love of God. How the heck does petitionary prayer work in a world where there's so much suffering and evil? Is praying for others just a religious, superstitious practice that does nothing at all except make the person praying feel better? If we don't pray for others, does God allow them to get sicker, lose potential rent money, and suffer in their addictions? Is that who God really is? Can we engage in prayer that is more effective, less harmful, and doesn't make God look like an unfair, stingy, and fickle jerk? If you are looking for a pioneering book on prayer that is thought-provoking, challenging, and endorsed by some of today's most well-known authors and scholars, then Divine Echoes is the book for you. G'day and welcome back to another episode of the Ideas Digest podcast where we explore the challenging ideas that divide us in order to open our minds and achieve world peace or something like that. My name's Conrad and if you're a new friend of the show, welcome to the podcast or the YouTube channel if that's where, if that's where you're watching this. And if you're a super friend of the show, super welcome to you. These are the people that went to ideasdigest.org, signed up, support the show. They get ad-free content, bonus behind-the-scenes material, see Matt and I fight and argue and we share some honest opinions and you get our under gratitude as you keep us from pandering and sacrificing too much to the almighty god of the algorithm speaking of the almighty algorithmic god feel free to help us with our ongoing war that we wage with the algorithm by sharing this podcast with someone who might enjoy or not enjoy a specific episode just like Izzy Might 303 has done he has sent sent a text message to i believe his son who is a teenager, and as we know, teenagers know everything, and he sent through a link to the episode entitled, Let Me Change Your Mind About Jordan Peterson, with the caption, I bet you can't finish this episode before you call me to tell me they are all wrong. Excellent clickbait, <laughs> Izzy Mike 303, well done, and I, I bet he can't, I bet he can't. So feel free to share an episode to share this podcast with someone who might love it or someone who might be extremely challenged by it and then let me know how that goes. That helps us fight the algorithm and spread the word about the podcast the old-fashioned way without selling our souls to clickbait, which, hey, we do from time, we do hear from time to time. Other ways you can support the show, feel free to leave us a review. Reviews equal clout and clout equals higher profile guests. So thank you, friends of the show who've left us reviews thus far. To business, the TLDR on this episode for you Gen Zs tuning in. We've got to keep it snappy. Keep it snappy. Keep some attention. 
is masculinity toxic? What's going wrong with men? I just put up an Instagram poll on my Instagram and I said, hey, what should I change? What should Matt and I change someone's mind about next? We just did one on Jordan Peterson. We tried to change some people's minds. I won, by the way, for the record, got a 1% opinion shift. Matt got zero. So we're going, who should we do it about next? I put up a poll and uh, checking the poll right now, <laughs> I, I put up three options. I put, and, I put up Andrew Tate, Elon Musk, and toxic masculinity. And you'll never guess who won, or maybe you can. Andrew Tate squeaked out a victory. So this guy, this guy garners both a lot of love, boy, a lot of love, and a heck of a lot of hate. And it all seems to be centered around this idea of masculinity. So as I dip my toe in the very potentially toxic waters around masculinity, feminism, Andrew Tate, what is the role of a man in our modern society? What's the problem? Why are men suffering so much? Are they suffering so much? Do they have too much privilege? I don't know. There's a lot of questions. So let me introduce you to Level 3 academic Hilary McBride. And I put to her a lot of these questions that I have swirling around in my head around this topic right now. Hilary McBride, or is it Dr. Hilary McBride? It is Dr. Hillary McBride, but I love going by Hillary. It's just fine. Oh, okay. I like, yes. I like to just, when I'm like big noting the podcast, using your doctorate to, oh. to kind of make me seem more important. So I'm like, oh, look, oh, I have a doctor gosh. on the show. You do? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I hope it works for you. I hope it helps. <laughs> but but I, I'll, I'll go by Hillary just for you. Let's say I know you're in Canada and mm-hmm. let's say I walk into you and do you have a dog? I don't, no. Okay, you don't have a dog. You're not walking a dog. You're, you're grabbing a coffee from C- Canadian establishment, Timmy Horton's, you know, the number one go-to <laughs> tiny donut shop in Canada, and you're grabbing a coffee. And we bump into each other, and we've yeah. just met, like we have just now. Right. And I'm like, oh, Hillary, my name's Connor. Nice to meet you. Hillary, who are you and what do you do? Mm. Mm. Okay, so you want my pitch. How long do I yeah. have to introduce you? Are, you? are you running out the door to head somewhere else, or do we have a minute or two? Uh, I, you've got, you can see in my eyes that I'm a chatty guy. Mm-hmm. I like a chat. So okay, you're like, you I'll like give this guy a bit of an extended pitch. <laughs> okay. A pitch. I don't know if I would pitch myself ever, but I'll tell you a little bit about who I am. <laughs> um, you know, I, I love the human experience and I'm curious about it. It seems perpetually. And, and that includes me and my inner world but also the people around me, the people I know, the people I don't know, the people I love, the people I haven't yet had a chance to meet and what unites us and all of that. And so there's something that feels really orienting for me in the way that I move through the world, which has to do with being curious about what it means to be human. And that no doubt has shaped my profession as a psychologist and, and doing kind of the, the grueling work of the academics that take you all the way to the end of the road there to ask the questions about what happens inside of us as people. And, um, Outside of that, I, I love to be by the ocean and I love to read. I have a, a chronic book issue. Uh, my husband calls it a book problem. I call it a book solution. But mm. we're, we're often drowning in books around here. Uh, right. And so being going out for a run or being on my bike, and I, I have a daughter now, so often taking her on the bike and packing our bag full of books and heading to the beach and then reading for hours is, uh, is what I love to do most. Now, as you know, what time is it? Oh, it's judgment time. <laughs> that didn't work. What day is it? It's judgment day. I, f- I'll be honest with you podcasting and YouTubing friends of the show. I was very insecure 
about doing this judgment day. There's something about judging a uh, psychologist who, uh, I don't know, talks to people for a living. And it's safe to say I tried my best, but I think she beat me. I think she won the game. We've just met, oh, you've just given me a lovely intro, and now I've got a list of judgments that society have told me about you, and I'm placing you in boxes. How would you feel if I confessed some of these judgments in my heart, well, maybe not my heart, but friends of the show's heart, that people might have about you? Mm. You know what's so funny about that is that my profession actually has, has me want to know those things as a oh, way of determining... Good. Okay. Who are you, right? Because the judgments are about me, but actually they're mirrors back into ourselves. And so I feel like I would really welcome your judgments of me because they would also help me get to know you better too. Mm, Okay. And in that way, um, I don't feel scared by them because they they would also reveal something about what's happening between us. And that is this, this is the juice of being human. It's like, um, yes, yes, you're having a reaction to that. No, that is a very good way of going, well, Uh I might be giving you an insight into me or friends of the show might have confessed some of the, the things inside of themselves mm. and we're, we're going to sit and listen curiously. So you sound very open, mm-hmm. open to that mm-hmm. and it's, yes. you know, you're not taking it personally, which is great because, mm-hmm. all right, well, let's start with the first one then, if you're okay. all right with that. Um, and feel free to say yes or no, sprinkle mm-hmm. some nuance. The hard version of the game is where people just say yes or no and we come to the nuance and the dialogue very soon after. So it's up mm-hmm. to you, yes or no, or the or a bit of nuance, mm-hmm. uh, but the first judgment people might have, and let's face it, I'm talking to you right now, I'm talking to a therapist, I'm <clears throat> immediately aware of the pieces of paper that you might hold that show a certain amount of knowledge that you have that I do not have, and I'm thinking, mm-hmm. oof, I'm very self-conscious right now, I'm going, Hillary, you just, are you, how much are you going to psychoanalyze mm-hmm. me in this conversation? Mm-hmm. I'll, uh, out know- of one to ten. <laughs> Well, I think I'm, I'm more likely to now because you've prompted the question. You know what's interesting? I always say to people about that, that like, cause that's a, that's a projection that I get a lot. Oh, you um, do. Excellent. Very good. Yes. Yes. I'm, I'm not working unless we've contractually negotiated a relationship in which you are inviting my analysis and that would be beneficial for you. And so although there are uh-huh. like reactions that I might have, or if I'm trying to make sense of something, cause you know, someone nudges me in the street and I think, why, why would they do that? Or someone who's really kind mm-hmm. and I feel like, Oh, it's hard for me to take in what's going on there. I might do that. But if, if we're not in a therapeutic relationship, I'm not doing therapy with you. So probably okay. very, very little right now. Like a two or a three. Maybe. Yeah. Just a human yeah. amount. Just yeah. A, okay. A normal, a normal amount. Okay. Excellent. Uh, yeah. <laughs> How does that feel? How does that feel knowing that? It makes me very comfortable. It's very nice. Good. This is very okay. good. Okay. <laughs> the next people, judgments I have, hey, not me. I'm just speaking for a friend. It's just a friend. It's not me. <laughs> uh, you, you must be, you've got the DR in front of your name. You mm-hmm. sound like an out-of-touch academic. That's a judgment that people have? Yeah. Or that, that's well, a judgment maybe, they yes. could have? Yeah. Definitely. You know what's interesting? Yeah. I don't get that one very often. Um, Unless I'm in a role where I'm intentionally trying to hold back my relational capacity, but because of the nature of the work that I do, which is attachment and relational oriented and, Mm. and tends to be about facilitating a kind of like felt sense of being seen and known, that's often not something that happens. And you might've even heard me say like, yes, I am Dr. Hillary McBride, but please call me Hillary. I I want for you to actually remove the hierarchy from the relationship. And so if you, mm. if someone wants to put me in that position where they're maintaining a sense of 
inequality or power over dynamic, that, that might be something that they feel more comfortable with as opposed to something that I'm asking for. And if they were to, to tune into the way that I'm trying to relate, I hope that they would experience me as wanting to very much be here and now with you as a person mm-hmm. and as you are a person. As people port your career and you as a person onto mm-hmm. the context of the pop culture war that's going on, people are going to look at potentially the things you say, uh, some of the ideas you talk about and go, Hillary, she's just another woke social justice warrior. Mm. I don't know if I've ever actually received that feedback. Um, you are in Canada, yeah. not America. Maybe that makes sense. Yeah, perhaps I stay. Um, but you know what's so interesting is like, again, I feel like that's that tells me so much more about how they feel and, and mm. how those words have been utilized in constructive or unconstructive ways in relationships that they've had and the ways that a person might need to defend themselves. But I, mm-hmm. I generally, um, yeah, I would be open to exploring that with a person, but I, I guess I don't mm. really see myself in that way. And that reaction tells me something more mm. like, Oh, they're just a such and such. Like mm. I'm going to write a person off and I'm not really going to get to know them because I think I know who they are. Again, that tells me more about that person than, mm. than me yes. necessarily. Yes. Yes, I, it, it's the first time in this judgment segment where someone's gone, hmm, that's very curious. I would like to converse with that person to de- yeah. deeper understand what's going on and where that come from and where are those constructs did you form and what are you really saying? Yes. All right, I might ma- be in the right field. The hint, there's another <laughs> sure. one in the, in the, in the same okay. vein. You talk about feminism yeah. and mm-hmm. we're going to talk a little bit about masculinity, femininity in, mm-hmm. in a little bit. But people will he- potentially hear what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Probably a glance you know, low resolution, what you're saying, and go, Hillary, talking about feminism, therefore she must be just a, another man-hating feminist. Mm. Again, what is it you're wanting me to do with these questions? Because it feels like I'm supposed to be taking some bait and I, I am not experiencing <laughs> this some way. <laughs> generally, generally what I do, and you actually made this very difficult because I kind okay, of like, sorry. I Google people, on, and uh-huh. you're, you're a semi-public figure, and uh-huh. I go, okay, what are people saying? Like, where's the hate? Mm. Where's the pushback? And then I mm-hmm. like to put it in front of friends of the show and they go, mm-hmm. people saying this, what do you say? I go, oh, yeah, I can see that. No, I don't think I'm this. Or mm-hmm. people make accusations and then I like to... Put, pe- put it in front of the people oh, I'm talking to. Right, but right. as I Googled you, I was like, Hillary mm. McBride debunked. Hillary McBride wrong. And I couldn't find, I couldn't find <laughs> anything. So then I took, I took just these general, all right, feminism. People, there <laughs> the, is the quite a large backlash of feminism, the stereotypes, mm-hmm. the tropes. So anyway, you've defeated okay. the game. Extra points oh, to you. Gosh, um, but maybe so you sorry. can tell me, yeah. what kind of judgments do you face or do you get or assumptions people get? Mm-hmm. Where do you feel misunderstood? Because mm. you are communicating as a public figure. And I am mm-hmm. surprised to see, you know, when you do talk about, like you, you are in the religious space and you do talk mm-hmm. sometimes about theology and things like that. And normally that attracts like a, a certain type of dialogue around it all. Do, have you come across any pushback, any mm-hmm. um, judgments that people have thrown at you as you're putting your work into the public sphere? Mm. Oh, yeah. And I think that there's... Um you know, there's something about social media and the echo chamber of how we negotiate with who we, you know, follow or don't, which has people not interested in my work, not really interacting with it in so much mm-hmm. because you, you don't really, I, my work is not public in such a way that it's shoved in your face. You, you kind of have to f- find what I do and be interested in it to kind of come, come after some of my writing. And, and so my guess is that the people who would discredit what I have to say probably just wouldn't interact with it it would be Mm. repulsive or kind of, um, unhelpful. 
But I think that there, the thing that I encounter, maybe this is where I could allow myself to be more, more personal and again, debunk the myth of the kind of the out of touch academic yeah. is that there's something for me that feels flattening about being put in the role of savior. And so there's something about therapist that sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes people do of like, oh, this is a person who's going to rescue me from my pain. And in doing so, I become an object utilized for a person's uh, kind of rescue fantasy. And there is an assumption about me, maybe kind of the ones that you're saying of like, oh, I, I know all sorts of things and I, I want to have the power of knowing all of the things, which is why I studied people and the way we tick and, and what helps us heal. And so for me, those feel like the most difficult kinds of projections because again, they reduce me to an object for somebody else's gain and don't really allow me to be a person. And I think what I'm actually wanting is for all of us to be people, to kind of really capture the, the phenomenal, phenomenological nature of these existential questions that we have of, of being human, I think requires us to allow ourselves to be seen and known and encountered by one another. And it becomes much harder to encounter ourselves and each other when we, when we reduce a person to a, to a, trope of healer or of, um, villain or whatever, whatever story we might tell and stop ourselves from seeing who is right in front of us. And I think because of the nature of my role, people don't always want to see my personhood. They want to use, use me or use the information. And, uh, that makes it a little harder to do my job and makes it a little harder to be me. But again, those, I think those are things that I know how to deal with and navigate through. And so they don't feel like they, trip me up too much but that's maybe that's the pain point yeah, a lot of your work and the, the thing i guess i want your your pitch on is you run i, I saw you you running sacred feminine retreats for mm -hmm. men i think that, that's mm -hmm. the name for it and it got me thinking about men masculinity we've had friends on the show before talking about what the what they would believe their ideal masculine is and how that's in opposition to feminine and i suppose i'd like your pitch on this area of men, their emotions, and masculinity. What mm. picture would you paint to go, here's what potentially men could improve on or help with, and here are the problems and the pitfalls of masculinity as we see it today? Because right mm. now in the popular zeitgeist going on at the moment, we've got toxic masculinity on one side, and then this very, like, people reacting and going masculinity is not toxic there's this whole culture war around masculinity so i'd love to hear you start where you want to start around the topic of masculinity men mm -hmm. emotions where would you begin that mm. i guess very complex topic yeah you know it it where it all comes together to me is looking at some of the research about what does it mean to be a healthy human and we have research about being a healthy human that suggests that there's something to do with our capacity to, to know what we're feeling, regulate what we're feeling, communicate to others, allow them to come alongside us when we are experiencing feeling and, and make meaning of those feelings as they bring us into connection with ourselves and those around us. Anything that gets in the way of that starts to get me curious about how the person and their their felt and lived experience, the quality of their life, the quality of their relationships are being impacted. And one of the things that we see around the, the relationship between masculinity as it's socially constructed in Western, pre predominantly white culture, is that there is a restriction around the capacity to feel and to feel in connection. 
this, I don't know how much you're familiar with this or how much the listeners of the show will be familiar with this, but there's an emerging theory that came out, I would say it's, it's now about 30 years old, but you know, these, the information that we have in research doesn't always filter down and disseminate into our cultural discourse. So it might still feel kind of novel for a lot of folks. The current theory about mental health issues is that, that there's actually an emotion dysregulation quality at the center of most presenting mental health issues. So if we look at what is one of the unifying things about everything from depression and anxiety to phobias and bipolar disorder and most things in that category, we'd see that there's something about emotion and emotion dysregulation, either the inability to regulate or the inability to, uh, to feel at all, right? To be in connection with emotion. And that, that the story about emotion and emotion regulation overlaps quite well with the story around gender that many of us are given. So when we look at what's going on in the story of gender for men in particular, we see that there's a story that starts really early between five and seven at its latest, where men are often feeling like they have to forfeit connection to their emotional world as a means of being good enough in the eyes of the masculine ideal or their peers. And what that means and what it leads to is the sense of, I have to disconnect from my bodily some, you know, my somatic and affective process, the things inside of me that tell me who I am and what I want and what I long for and how to be close and how to let people in. I have to choose between that and being a good boy, a good man. And as a result of having to choose between the two of those things, boys and men are often consequently lonely right? There's the, the irony is like, I'm going to try to choose this story that will ultimately, I hope, get me connection. But because it costs me myself, it costs me the connection I feel to my emotional world. And emotion is actually the center of empathy and intimacy and a felt sense of like, we're in this together. Then they do this thing to try to be close, but you can't actually experience the closeness on the other side of it. And it's, it costs you the fullness of who you are. So when I think about men and what it is that we need to do in terms of reorganizing the story of masculinity, I think a lot of it focuses on the ability to have flexible roles that transcend the rigidity of restricted emotional presentation and the mm -hmm. ability to, to trust others, to let them in without the fear of that being, um, a kind of moral weakness or without it getting wrapped up in the story of homophobia and there being some sort of like, um, devaluation of your, you know, your gender presentation. If you were seen as having softness or closeness or mm. intimacy with other men or women and the ability to feel like you don't have to wear these roles, this heavy mantle of the performing of toughness that I think is creating this crushing and unbearable weight for so many men. And, mm -hmm. and they might not notice it early in life after the initial schism has taken place. But when we look at the rates of suicidality for men, it is men who are in their mid to late life, who are of the most frequent people who are attempting and completing suicide because there is something that is catching up with men of the overwhelming loneliness and disconnection that starts to impact the quality of your physiological health that starts to impact mm. the quality of your well-being your um your sense of purpose and meaning mm -hmm. so maybe i'll leave it there and you can respond or ask mm -hmm. more questions but it seems that there's the, at its root i'll say this is 
actually just about what does it mean to be a healthy human? And we can see that the story of healthy humanness and the story of ideal masculinity diverge. Mm -hmm. Because as I listen to what you're saying, it sounds like the story in current society as it hits pop culture, as it hits the mainstream, men v. women, what is a man, what is a woman, that like clickbait culture war of it. The conversation goes, what is the ideal man? And everyone's arguing over, they should be like this, they should be like that. Whereas you kind of, from the beginning, have shifted that point to, well, let's make our conversation moving forward from here about what is a healthy human, whether you're a man or a woman, then let's look at specific things that occur more regularly in men. Okay, well, what is, what is that and what are we finding there? And then you're overlaying, well, what could be the reasons why men have higher su- suicide rates and loneliness? It sounds like you're saying the story that men are handed as they're growing up as to what it means to be a man that is so rigid that men struggle to fit within it and to potentially help men th- uh, flourish as humans helping men connect with their emotions will help them connect with others and that may begin to address some of the loneliness and connection um, mm-hmm. issues that they that may be causing man loneliness pandemic. Yeah, I think that you you did a really beautiful job summarizing it and that last point that you made feels really central to this too which is like meaning is about connection. What does it mean to be a human and and not just what are the things that we need, the kind of the basics to survive, but how do we move into a space of being well and flourishing and rich relationships are so foundational to our flourishing that if we actually don't get them in early years, then our systems don't develop. You can actually, right, if babies aren't touched, if they're not held, they can die, even if their physical needs are met around nourishment and shelter. So there is something that is so central to our existence um, in in the experience of relationship and connection that we might not notice right away the cost of loneliness, but we might see it cumulatively as we age. We might see it in men as they're, right, these, these markers that, ask us questions about, you know, what, why are men so in so much pain as they age when they are supposedly right, have all of this power. And I think what I love about having this conversation and the argument here is again, it comes back to your, the, the judgment portion of the show, which is like, well, you're, you're a man, man hater. I think anybody who actually interacts with my work sees that I love men, my feminism, and I would say, I, I, would, I would borrow this from many of the great womanist feminists, the womanists like Bell Hooks, and um, I'm thinking of Audre Lorde as well. Like to, to really be a feminist, I would say, is to look at the way that the rigidity around gender scripting in masculinity harms men, right? Why are men so violent against women? Why do men need to have all of the power in certain spaces and feel so threatened when they don't have it? Why are men creating destructive patterns in society and systems that, that, you know, fragment us from each other and from the earth? Well, I don't think it's because men are bad. I think it's because men have been so disconnected from what is actually so good about them that that fragmentation has only one or kind of has a couple ways of working itself out, which is that we perpetuate further fragmentation. But men, I think at their root, just like all life and all living things and all, all women and all humans, I think are fundamentally good, but many of us carry wounds and we don't know what to do with them. And so we, we take our wounds and we hand them to the people around us. 
because people might hear what you're saying and they, they can hear it on the line of going, okay, this is an empathetic diagnosis of, of, of look at these issues in society, males violence against women, uh, men's disconnection, and we go, okay, well, clearly there's something wrong with men and that's where the term toxic masculinity comes into it. And they go, well, it's, it's men being toxic and then people mm-hmm. can, men can hear that and go, well, you know, I can't help it, I'm just a man, it's the way I am. And mm-hmm. I'm like, it's, you're, you're kind of blaming me if you're saying masculinity is problematic you're blaming me for, for these for these issues and, and it's just kind of who I am. What's your what would how would you communicate this idea around mm. toxic masculinity? Is is masculinity wrong? Is there something hardwired into this term of masculinity? Or is this a version of masculinity and there is a healthy version of masculinity? Well I think you're asking two questions in there and one of them is how would I communicate this? And then mm-hmm. the other is, what do I think about masculinity? And so I want to try to, yeah. I want to try to address both of them. Yeah. But I think whenever I'm looking at how do I communicate this, I think it's important to recognize that I would never recommend ever getting into a, a conversation with a man and being like, you're toxically masculine and you need to change. Like that's not how people change, <laughs> right? That's yes. right. And so I think what's really important here is recognizing that that there is, again, a person underneath the judgment. I think that's kind of a, a sub-theme mm. or maybe a meta-theme of the conversation yeah. we're having. Like, what is the person's story? Who are they? What's their relationship to that story? Have they had anyone listen to them? Do they listen to themselves? When did that when did that schism take place? So if I was to talk to someone about masculinity, I think what I would really want to hammer home is that you can be a man in the society that we exist in and that the stories of masculinity actually can be separate from who you are as a person. And anytime we're looking at systems, we always want to remember that systems do not necessarily to take into consideration a phenomenological person in front of us. So I love to deconstruct systems in their health or unhealth, but I think people are meant to be nourished and people are meant to be celebrated and seen and attuned to. So I would want to separate out can we disconnect who you are as a person from these socially constructed narratives of gender that have impacted you and look at how you have swum in the water of them for so long that you didn't even know that the water was there. And when we can allow a person to see themselves as separate from a system, then they actually get to think critically about it themselves. I mean, this is true of anything from gender all the way to racial identity. I mean, there's so many racial identity development models that are helpful at saying, you know, can we think critically about our own race? And I think it's important for each person to look at the identities that they hold and ask, how do I benefit from this? How does it hurt me? Have I thought about this? Have I not thought about this? Why have I not thought about this? How does me being in this identity and having a kind of alliance to this identity hurt me or hurt the people around me? But when you can see a person and identities kind of as stories that we wear that we could think critically about, then I think it creates a little bit more flexibility psychologically for a person to not see this conversation as an attack as much as it is like an exploration, a curiosity. So the stories that we swim in, the... they shape us in ways and you're trying to hold two things at the same time in this conversation going there are there's society tells stories and they impact us in certain ways and then so we can deconstruct the narratives that we've been told through media through through the family stories through cultural stories and then we can go okay well if we can understand that then we might get a slight more insight into help us navigate the human and so it sounds like you're trying to juggle the person being human Mm -hmm. and as well as the stories as well and not just completely 
critique a construct without realizing the humans individually in right. this because obviously that's your work is working individually right. with humans we're getting into the territory of i think like continental philosophy too and existentialism when we talk about this because the and merleau ponty maurice merleau ponty who's someone who's really impacted my work really was one of the f people at the forefront of looking at embodiment as a central component to this that we have social constructs but the social constructs are felt and lived and known through bodies and bodies are a tool for communication as well and shape our lived reality. And so I'm trying to juggle like we're a person, but we're in a system and there's constructs, but there's actually matter and matter and constructs are constantly in a dialectic and that shapes what it means and feels like to be us. So I want to be able to separate these out, but in true reality, I can't actually take off the cloak of the feminine socialization that was handed to me even before I was born. I can't take it off, but I can, I can try to like get a little bit of room underneath it to see how it's impacted me. Meanwhile, it's socialization and constructs are baked into our matter, right? They're actually, mm -hmm. they live in our bodies as felt realities. So this is all just an intellectual exercise. We can't actually separate ourselves from the ideas. And I think it's good to be able to recognize we're trying to do something that's complicated here to be in a role and see outside of it. G'day, I'm Troy. And I'm Brian. And we're the hosts of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, an ex-evangelical podcast. We used to be loyal members and leaders in Australian Christian megachurches, but we're not anymore. I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist is an honest and hilarious peek behind the curtain at the weird, the worrying, and sometimes traumatic world of evangelicals and Pentecostals. We share our stories, we interview prominent guests in the global evangelical space, and provide a platform for others to tell their stories about their time in evangelicalism and their journey out. Shortlisted at the recent Australian Podcast Awards, I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist gives you a unique global perspective into one of the fastest growing religions in the world from the people who actually lived it. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and IWasAteenageFundamentalist.com. When it comes to men and their emotions, it sounds like you're describing there's these societal stories that are telling men here is what here's, here is how you operate in the world, and you're mm -hmm. saying that is clearly looking at these indicators not working for men or women, but in but even specifically talking about men. So then, what is the struggle with mm. men and their emotions? Because you're, you're you're connecting emotions in a way that I, I don't you don't hear often in this way of like emotions are part of how we communicate, they're part of how we mm. connect, they're part of how we express things that maybe we don't even know in ourselves that the stories have fed us and then mm -hmm. but you're also seeming to say that men in a way are disconnected from their emotions or struggle expressing their emotions mm -hmm. so what's going on there around yes. men specifically and their emotions can i i'll back up and answer the second question that you asked that i didn't get to yet because i think it'll oh, sure. connect to this here yes and that has to do with the the name or the words toxic masculinity and my f a friend mm -hmm. of mine actually a scholar dr brendan kwiatkowski has just completed his phd in looking at rigid and i should say a whole a whole spectrum of emotions in in young men and he's he's pulled up some literature and brought it to my awareness recently around playing with that term and not necessarily thinking about the words toxic masculinity because of the shame inducing nature of the words. And I think mm -hmm. what it does, and instead asking people to say, um, restricted, 
restricted emotionality of masculinity, something like that, right? Where we're looking more at like, what does it, what is toxic about it? Instead right. of saying it's just toxic, right? That tends to shut the conversation down. But if we actually describe it, it kind of reminds me of saying things like, you know, we have these buzzwords culturally, like I'm unsafe. I feel unsafe. Mm-hmm. Right. And if you ask a person like, well, what, what does that mean? Yep. Right. That might actually create a conversation. There might be something there. If a person goes, oh, I feel all of a sudden I feel scared. Right. Oh, good. I know something about you now that I didn't know before. But when we say like toxically masculine or I'm unsafe or things like that, we tend to shut conversation down and it's hard to actually build healthy culture without being able to be in relationship or dialogue with each other. So I like to describe, I think that he's really um, prompted me to think about like, what am I saying when we normally talk about toxic masculinity? What is it? Right. What are we actually describing? And there seems to be some things that have come up in the research literature about what that is. So I just thought I'd like, you know, highlight some of those things for you. I think there are seven points. One of them is this idea around self-sufficiency. I'm going to do it all by myself, right? I'm, I need to be in charge of things and I need to be alone. Uh, the second one is acting tough. So this portrayal of a sense of like invulnerability, like I'm strong and I'm tough. The third is I need to be physically attractive. So there is something about appearance management and my, you know, I need to be portraying my self-sufficiency and my, my sense of toughness and my image as well. Like image is important for helping me be loved and valuable. Uh, the fourth thing is rigid masculine gender roles. And this often has to do with division of labor. So what do we do in the household? And like, who is responsible for what kind of work? Even things like fatherhood, right? Parents, fathers sometimes still saying to themselves like, oh, I'm babysitting tonight instead of like, oh, I'm parenting my own child, right? We, the, the, the dad might see themselves as like an adjunct parent instead of an equal part in the parent parenting sphere. Uh, the fifth thing is heterosexuality and homophobia. So again, in dominant masculine, masculine culture, there is a rigid narrative about, you know, are you perceived as being too close to other men in a way that threatens your masculinity? Are you perceived as being gay? Are you okay to be and spend time with your openly gay friends? Uh, number six is hypersexuality. And this has to do with, again, sexual prowess and conquest, the sense of like, I'm in control. I have, I have what I want. I can get what I want sexually, maybe even a kind of valorization of objectification of others' bodies, of women's bodies. And then number seven is aggression and control. So the idea of how we resolve conflicts, who's in charge, the kind of, the I'm a real man means that I use violence, control, power, physical violence to come down hard to, um, to show show I'm the boss. So those would be the things that we would see. And this comes from the empirical research, right? These are not seven things that I made up. This is, this is data. Um, those are the things that we see is constructing the narrative of masculinity that seems to result. If you look at the, the sequence of events in men who have really poor mental health and who are experiencing suffering and are lonely and are wanting to end their lives, these are the factors that men report as contributing to that kind of that outcome in their life down the line. So those are the things that when we're looking at like, what is, what is happening in masculinity that is making men feel so lonely and so much suffering and so much, you know, they're experiencing so much depression and we would want to start to look at these things. And then I think it's natural then to start to deconstruct them, deconstruct them and say, well, okay, if aggression and control 
are central to how you're navigating conflict, what are other healthier alternatives? What are other ways to navigate conflict that might allow for mutual respect and dialogue and self-regulation and nonviolent ways of communication? Or if we looked at things like, um, you know, acting tough or self-sufficiency, what is, what is an alternative to self-sufficiency? Well, probably mutual support and care, a sense of vulnerability, the ability to, that might be more related to acting tough, but can I, you know, can I, as a man, allow myself to need help and express those needs to my peers Mm -hmm. and to people around me? So we can, when we start to, you know, look at what is, you know, this restrictive narrative of masculinity and what does it consist of? And then we start to break those things down. We can kind of reverse engineer a version of masculinity that looks more like this thing that we were talking about that has to do with healthy humanness that seems Mm. to be able to hold more fluency of emotional connection, more vulnerability, more asking for help, a more flexible Mm. way of viewing one's role in relationship. Uh, Do these behaviors, are they limiting men's emotional capacity? And are these behaviors, so if if you've got, I've got to be the sole provider, that's the story Mm -hmm. of um, soul sufficiency. Mm -hmm. Are you saying that this is problematic because it's an isolating behavior or if I solve problems with aggression, are you saying that's a problem because it's isolating or, and are these problematic because of what they teach men to engage with their emotions, to teach them to suppress certain Mm -hmm. emotions, teach them Mm -hmm. to boost other emotions as well as simultaneously isolate them? Is that the connection with the unhealthy, the the objectively bad outcomes for men later in life and Mm -hmm. these behaviors? Maybe I'll say it this way. To be human is to experience pain and beauty. And to be human is to need connection. So those are the things that we think about as creating the foundation of of being healthy, of being human. And if you cannot have space to talk about what hurts, what are you Mm going to do with it when it comes up? And if every time you try to build connection, your approach is don't get too close to me because I don't want you to need me and I don't want to need you. Or I'm not going to tell you what's really going on because then I'm going to be seen as less valuable. And then somehow you're not going to like me, right? Those things get in the way of the pain that we have in our lives, being able to breathe the pain that we have in our lives, being able to be contained in the context of these relationships that allow us to know that we're not alone with our pain. And this is like, this comes back to my, one of my working definitions of what is psychopathology or what causes psychopathology, which is just our fancy way of saying what, you know, what is at the root of so much of our mental health issues, health issues, what, what's going on there. This is a, a definition from Dr. Diana Fosha, who says suffering is unwilled an unwanted aloneness in the face of overwhelming emotion. So if being human means that we have feelings that are hard, but we also have people alongside us who help us tolerate those feelings, then we can get through the hard stuff. It's mm-hmm. the, it's the aloneness and the suffering that tends to create the dysfunction, especially during development that makes us feel like, Oh, I'm alone, right? When we're kids and we experience aloneness and we experience pain, the child's brain doesn't have the capacity to go, ah, you know, mom's just overworked. You know, this isn't about me. Mom had a really stressful day. 
the child's brain is so self-organizing in terms of its orientation towards the world that the child's brain says, I'm alone in my feeling because I'm not loved. It's the only conceivable solution for a child if their emotional wound is, is left untended to. So, and this is the field of attachment and interpersonal neurobiology. And so when we have these experiences of aloneness that are unwilled and unwanted, we don't know how to tolerate the suffering. And we start to tell stories about ourselves that we're unlovable, that we're broken, that we can't let people close because, you know, no one, no one should have to be close to me when I feel this way, because no one's going to stick around or whatever the story is. And if we don't have closeness and connection, then the suffering becomes intolerable. And then what happens is we tend to get better and better strategies at trying to manage the suffering. So we drink, right? Drinking, mm -hmm. drinking is, is I don't think a problem, but when you drink because you don't know how to feel your sadness and then you do shitty things because you're drunk, because you're actually sad, right? That tends to look to me like not a very fulfilled life that gets in the way of connection and closeness and meaning and fulfillment and agency and a sense of purpose. So I think all of this is connected again, back to this, this con content around emotion that we're talking about an emotion. Again, if this is new information for you or for the listeners, what we need to remember is that emotion is both physiological and relational. Always. It's this thing that's kind of an enigma that sits at the intersection of matter and connection. An emotion is wired into us from the moment that we're born to be able to signal to our caregivers. I'm angry. I'm scared. I'm sad. I'm alone. But then as we grow up to signal to our peers, stay away from that, that, you know, that's it. There's a threat over there or this feels so good. Let's do more of this. Do you want to do more of this? I love mm. this. This was the best. Let's make more of what makes us feel alive. And when emotion sits at the intersection of body and connection, but we feel like we have to repress emotion to stay in connection, then the irony is that we don't get the goodies of the emotion, which is closeness and intimacy and vitality. So one of the things I regret about this conversation is that it was so short. Normally I do an interview for about an hour and a half because I've discovered that's about enough time to get to know somebody, explore their ideas, do the pushback, but really inject and get a feel for who this person is and how they got to where they are. Because Hillary is a highly qualified academic with very limited time on her hands, I w had so many questions to ask her, I never got around to really unpacking who she was and how she got to this level of understanding? Is it her education? Is it her family background? Was it her upbringing? Was it her religion? Was it just through education that she got to these sorts of things? Alas, I have failed all you ideas digesting friends of the show. Unfortunately, didn't get around to that. But I did get around to what I always get around to, and that is some level of, of pushback. Hillary, as you pick up, is very specific and precise with her language. So what I really wanted to do in this conversation, in this kind of pushback section, I wanted to reconnect two worlds. One, the lofty academic world where they study this stuff, they debate it in, I assume, armchair rich book filled rooms filled with cigar smoke. I don't know. Uh, that's my imagination of the ivory tower of academics and just the average punter who sees this guy on TikTok, Andrew Tate or, who, or Jordan Peterson. They're like, yeah, that's a good diagnosis of what's wrong with men and women and what's going on in society today. And I wanted to reconnect some of these worlds and these discussions that are going on because it seems to, seems to me like there's two discussions being had with very different questions being explored. So I tried to tease out 
the differences between men and women. This seems to be, you know, that that very popular or very culture warry. What is a woman? Very kind of around trans rights or the invasion of trans rights on, I guess, conservative, politically conservative people. Um, is is the difference in sexes biological or socio or sociocultural? This seems to be some of the tensions that are had in this conversation. So I wanted to just reconnect the academic with what the punter might be thinking and might be saying. Tell me what you reckon. So why the popularity of the alternative narrative? When I go on YouTube, mm. when I look at the popularity of men like Andrew Tate, the message of Jordan Peterson, that garners a lot of popular support about men, men saying this story helped me out of a hard place. And as if, if I break down how I've perceived that story as I've tried to understand it for this conversation is they might hear what you're saying and go, okay, masculinity, femininity, gender differences are social constructs. And it's, there's no, you're erasing the biological differences. So you're saying all these behaviours of men need to be the sole provider, uh, physical attraction is a problem, like being wired towards good-looking people is a problem. They look at all those things and go, what, why is that a problem? I'm, and, the, and the underlying story I hear is it's biological. Hillary, it's biological. I'm evolutionary evolved because I need to, I need to shut down my emotions because I need to fight that line when it comes in because I'm a man and that's my role. Of course I want to have an attractive woman because that signals to me evolutionarily that that's an attractive mate. And so this is how I've evolved. You're, you're telling me it's a social construct, but it sounds to me like you're just erasing the gender differences and it sounds to me like you're <laughs> saying it's a social construct when evolutionary, I'm a man and this is what I'm supposed to do. Two questions, I suppose, in, in that is, what's your take on that story and that reaction? And why the popularity of this message? Because it does seem very different to your approach, which is talking about these are stories that we're told and these stories can be changed to help us flourish as humans. Whereas the alternative, as it seems to me, is going, this is evolutionary, this is the way I'm wired, this is the way men are supposed to be, and this is the way women are supposed to be. And if we go in harmony with that, then that's the solution. Well, I think how I would respond to a person who's actually saying that to me versus how, again, I'm, I'm thinking about the argument is different because it comes back to what we were saying before about systems versus piece it, people. So if I'm sitting in front of someone who's actually saying that to me, I would say, you know, what does it feel like for you that I'm suggesting that it's socialization? How is that inside of your system? Right? And I imagine they might say something like, I feel really angry. And I might say, what is it like to be angry? And what does it feel like in your body? Can you show me what you're angry? And, and what are all the things that you're angry about? Show me how angry you are. I really want to know. Because I bet you haven't really been heard around that anger. And then maybe I would say things like, what is it like that I want to hear? What is it like that even if we might, you know, get so easily caught up in the intellectual argument about this and the neuroscience of it and the political argument. How is it that, that I actually really care about the fact that you're angry? And then I might say, what, well, when was the first time you felt angry like this? And if we were curious about, you know, that anger, I'm wondering if there's anything else that's there. Like, I wonder if sometimes there's also sadness and fear. Like what if it feels really scary for you to think about me maybe taking away this thing that feels really helpful for you. And what would it be like if we thought about the first time you felt scared like that? And what would it feel like inside if you didn't have this access to this store? I mean, we could just go on and on and on and on and on. And what I imagine we would find underneath that is what we would find underneath any other kind of defense, which is like, we feel threatened. 
And we feel threatened because it's scary to be human and we felt alone with our experience and someone handed us something that works. Maybe not, doesn't make us feel super connected and peaceful and regulated emotionally, but it, it, it's like giving us a container in a world that is scary and chaotic. And whether that um, makes your relationships fulfilling or not, I absolutely want to validate that that narrative around masculinity, that specific one, that it's, you know, all testosterone and all biology and here are the roles and they're, you know, they're written to us. Like that is also a story. And there's lots of counter evidence to that. But the point is that that story has likely helped that person. And I would love to know what it helped them with. What were they feeling before they felt that story? And that matters to me underneath it all, that experience of, I bet before you had that to cling to, you felt lost and confused. And let's talk about the first time you felt lost and confused, because my guess is that it probably goes way, way back. The other, the other element to this too here is, I think that, again, I, I'm kind of, I want to back up and say the same thing differently. We have so many different ways of meaning making, the way things should be, how hard it is to be human, what helps us feel in control so that we feel less of the chaos of our existence. But I love to think about, you know, what do the people in this person's life think about who they are? Almost like a, a, the proof is in the pudding sort of thing. Like if you have this way of thinking about yourself, like, are you feeling at ease in your life? Are you feeling satisfied? Do you have meaning? Do the people in your life love you when you were like this? Do, are they getting distance from you? Are you finding belonging? What's the quality of that belonging? Mm. What happens if we ride that out 30 years? Like, cause I imagine like maybe that story really, really helps you, but, but are you actually having conversations that allow you feel, to feel close to people? And if you are, that's wonderful. And if, if you're not, I wonder if maybe like being angry about things all the time is not helping that because of, again, here's the kind of counter argument, which I love getting into again, the, the neurobiology of emotion and connection and, and socialization. What's really fascinating is that inflexibility psychologically is one of the most significant predictors of, you know, psychological unhealth, the rigidity around things have to be a certain way. We know from the neuroscience of our well-being impairs our ability to be well, because it means that like life has to look this very particular way for me to be safe and okay. And we have actually evolved beyond the capacity to need that by accessing social resources. This is polyvagal theory in the work of Dr. Stephen Porges, but looking at the phylogenic hierarchy of stress response, all of the neurobiology of our evolution shows that actually what's more foundational to both our survival and our flourishing than the rigidity of what keeps us safe is our ability to be in close connection with people because we have evolved to the ability into the ability to need connection and working together and closeness, both as a way of regulating our pathology from stress and illness, but as a way of getting our needs met. If I'm, if you and I are in a tribe together and I piss you off, that's not going to go well for one of us when push comes to shove and we need to share resources, right? So it's actually at the highest level of evolution to be close and connected. 
to feel like you can work together and to have psychological flexibility that allows you to adapt, meet the needs of your tribe, share and connect. And it's kind of like looking at, um, you know, those, those people, I think of like people in my parents' age were like, you know, the, the music in the sixties, it was the good old days. Like that's the real stuff. That's the real rock and roll. And you're like, yeah. bro, it's 2020. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm so glad. I'm just saying. <laughs> that's right. It's exactly. But like, we can look at evolution and say, yes, but we actually continued to evolve. And I don't know if you've seen the latest research, but we are not cave animals. We actually mm. have developed language that's quite sophisticated. Right. right? And, right. and what is the proof that your ideas work? Like, I'm not really interested in getting into an argument with anyone about anything that in a way would make them feel humiliated or dehumanized. So that would never be the angle I would take with someone. It would always be, yeah. tell me who you are and how that's worked for you. And ultimately, I think if we did that, including people who espouse the rigid narratives of masculinity, I think actually we could all be okay. Mm. It sounds like you're offering a story about man, masculinity, emotions. What is a potential story that could be incorporated for them, for the person to flourish as a human, as a man in a world, find more connection, express their emotions, navigate the ever-changing world within there. And, and as I piece together... You're inviting that person that says, no, it's the way it's meant to be. I'm kind of, as a man, masculinity, testosterone, it's biological. I'm meant to suppress emotions to fight for my tribe and all those sorts of things. You, I guess the, the invitation you're saying, you're offering is one that says, okay, well, let's test that story. Where does this lead? Do you feel more connected? Let's follow this arc over mm -hmm. time. And mm -hmm. it sounds like the story you're offering creates a lot of pushback when it's kind of crushed into a two-dimensional thing like I attempted to do there being like well you're eradicating biology men and women are the same you know you're feminizing you're glorifying weakness um, but it sounds like you're looking at that going okay th this worldview can feel like an attack on one that worked for you and let's just explore and see how well that world is working for you because you want to find out if it is or if it isn't because it likely is working in many ways. And then, and then if I'm perceiving an attack on that worldview that helps me, that can make me defensive and, and therefore attack the other world, the other story being presented. It sounds like you're saying, let's just look at these stories and see how they help the human. Is that kind of mm -hmm. taking what you're saying going... We can argue about these stories. We can argue about biology and evolution. And we can say, well, actually, uh, we continue to evolve and cooperation is actually how we survive, not just punching the caveman next to me to get his resources. We can, can, we can argue about that intellectually if we wish. But for you and your practice, it's coming down to here are the stories. Let's know about them. Let's learn about them. And then let's apply them individually to you as a person and see how they play out. Is, does that sound like roughly how mm -hmm. you're engaging with this whole topic? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And it, you know, it, it seems to me that joining is something that we don't often know how to do when we've decided that we disagree with someone or they disagree with us. And yet I would say that I also espouse these rigid narratives of masculine identity and those have been internalized inside of me. And sometimes they've worked, they've worked for me both in how I show up in the world and what I expect of the men around me. And, and so to say, you know, you're the problem and I know better really, again, dismisses how, how proliferated these ideas are and how they kind of touch all of us. And so I would love mm -hmm. to join in a conversation of like, wow, let's talk about how that, that idea 
has worked for me too as a woman. Mm. And I think whenever we're doing something healthy, we're considering more than one viewpoint. And we're also looking at, you know, are there other ideas? And, and can, we, can we look at it all? And I'm suggesting that when you look at it, you also don't have to give it up. But you can look at, here, here's a classic example that comes up in therapy. You can look at your parents and how they hurt you and not stop loving them and not torch the relationship. And you can actually decide that they were doing the very best that they could and still hold that there were things that you didn't get. And actually that's what maturity looks like. Maturity is the ability to hold complex thoughts at the same time that are seemingly opposing and believe that you have a space inside of you that is big enough to look at it all and still be okay. And so I think, again, back to what seems to be a central theme in our conversation, to be healthy as a human means to hold complexity and to be in relationship with the many parts inside of you. And when we say, yes, maybe this rigid narrative of masculinity has worked for me, and I'm actually really thankful for it because it's helped me feel stable in a world that has felt unstable, and it's helped me belong in a world where I felt like I haven't belonged, then maybe what we can also look at is and what inside of me has had to go away? And it's when we start to ask that question that we begin to reacquaint ourselves with where the fragmentation took place. I don't actually think you have to give up anything necessarily. Mm -hmm. I think it might be, can we welcome back what had to go away? And when we can welcome back what had to go away, we don't fall into the same pitfall of I'm swapping one rigid narrative for another rigid narrative, which I think can happen often in the political landscape mm -hmm. where we're like, I'm going to give up, you know, this rigid insert belief here, and I'm going to move to the, you know, the woke idea or this belief or the, you know, I'm going to switch left to right or right to left. Actually, I think what helps us is if we say, whoa, the more mature, more complex thing is to hold all of it and realize how all of it is inside of me and all of it is around me and how when I am consciously engaged with my world, I choose which ideal works best for this moment. Because there may be conversations kind of like, you know, maybe even the one that we're having here, like it, it works best for me to be able to lean into a certain social discourse that maybe helps me connect with somebody mm -hmm. and realize that doesn't threaten my ability to hold these other ideas. Like actually that's mm. maturity and that's health. That's in a way power and control, not dominion over somebody else and the resistance to dialogue, but who is inside of me and how do I be, how do I be conscious about which parts of me I lean into as a way of building the connection that I also need? Mm. It sounds the theme of, of a lot of what you're talking about is that the way you're talking about masculinity, what, what's underneath that, because that's just the specific category and topic it sounds like rigidity is the real thing that makes us suffer. This, this form of fundamentalism that says the way I do it is the way you need to do it. And if you think this way, I need to deconstruct that way. It sounds like you're offering an alternative that says we all hold ideas that can both be problematic and helpful. Let's be curious about these ideas, hold them mm -hmm. loosely, be less rigid and say, how has this con construction of masculinity served me or how or feminism has it served me how might it be hurting other people or even myself let's get curious about all of these things and realize we can pick up different tools at different times in different conversations in different contexts and perhaps the problem comes from when we have a 
enough rigidity to then try and force it on other people and we can end in these top-level arguments with everybody mm-hmm. else. Does that sound like some kind uh, of like yes, underlying theme of, of, what we're, yeah. of what we're getting to? And maybe the language I would use if we were talking therapy language would be content and process. Ideas are content, but process is how am I in relationship with you and these ideas? So mm. I can have an idea, but if, if the process around it is I'm a real jerk about how I talk about it, but my idea is that relationship is central to everything, there would probably be incongruence, right? My relational ideal in contrast with my a-relational process. So when we have processes and we can be conscious of them and they can be more in alignment with our ideals, I think that makes us feel better as a human. That's Dr. Carl Rogers. That's not me, right? His, his phenomenally important idea of congruence is I'm something I'm talking about here. But I think the ability to notice like, yeah, what, what is the content, right? What are my ideas? But also how am I in relationship with that content? takes us into Mm. more awareness of what's happening inside of us. And I think that's where we get the real juice. But Mm. as a process comment, what I'll say is you are a phenomenal summarizer (laughs) that your ability to consolidate ideas and, and kind of see what's happening at the root is like, it's astounding. I'm taking all of this and spewing it at you and you're making beautiful sense of the themes and the content and the multiple layers. So great process there, Conrad, you're doing great. Uh, well, thank you. Thank you very much. I'll take that compliment straight <laughs> to the bank and cash it in for some self-esteem. Thank you. Um, so, yes, uh, to, to redo it again, it's like you're always re-injecting the human, even to the point where at the end there you re-inject me, Conrad, as a human in, into that conversation, which I really appreciate. Hilary, mm. thank you so much for taking so much time to discuss mm. all manner of things with me. I could keep going, but if people want to follow your work, get a hold of you, where can they best do that? Yeah, uh, on Instagram, Hillary Leanna McBride. On Twitter, Hillary L. McBride. My website, hillarylmcbride.com. Uh, I've got books out. You can find those books anywhere books are sold. I had a podcast that uh, we haven't had a season in a little while called Other People's Problems, but it's all about listening to media yes, therapy with my patients. I wondered if that was coming back. That would, yeah, yeah that so be, we're going to, we, we got a question mark. Um, we might do a spinoff around psychedelic psychotherapy and using psychedelics oh. in the therapy space and kind of bring that in. We're just, we're, we're filling it out. We'll see. But potentially more OPP episodes, uh, TBD. So cool. stay tuned for that. But other people's problems. And then I have lots of episodes all the time released on podcasts. That's just where so you can always search my name in the wherever you find podcasts kind of search tool and, and you'll see me pop up there. Normally at the end of a podcast, Matt and I like to hop on our little moral high horse and, and see what, the, what, what these ideas are at their best and, and at their worst. And, but I noticed that Hillary was very, very good at reorienting the conversation away from these lofty logical ideas. Is it, is it evolutionary systems of hierarchy and structure and masculinity? Are these inherent traits? Kind of away from that debate that I suppose divides society right now and back into centering it around everybody, kind of including everybody. Hey, I'm just here to determine what is a healthy human, what is a healthy man, what does healthy engagement with emotions look like? And I, so I find it very difficult, especially by myself, sitting here to kind of break down, okay, these ideas at its best, at its worst, because I really, th- it seems to me like at its best, if we just sit down and look at what do we look like at our best and how do some of these stories and systems serve us and where do they limit us? I just think that's, that's an idea that kind of everyone could really get around. 
I guess at its worst, if, if you're pushing me, I'm like, does it, does it send the subtle message that we're not equipped to deal with these things ourselves, that we need professional help or that we need other people's support? Is it a pushback on the pull, you, pull yourself up by your bootstraps individualism that we've grown to love so much in our modern capitalistic society? I do not know. That's, that's an idea I have right there. Now, one question I had that Hillary was very good at redirecting my attention away from was the question that I alluded to at the beginning, which was, what is the difference between men and women? Because that seems to be, as far as I can tell, this central cultural war flashpoint of friend of the show, Will, on earlier, and he was saying, no, men are biologically meant to be like this. Women shouldn't be in the workplace. They should be at home being the head of the household. That's a far more prestigious job, and they should opt to do that instead of being the, the masculine brute force workplace. And so this, this cultural flashpoint idea seems to be reacting against society's progression towards, hey, women can do anything men can do or have the choice to do anything men can do, and any differences that are had, you've got one camp saying, no, there's biological differences, and then that leads to different roles that we should occupy within society and obviously it's a spectrum and then the other side saying no women can are the exact same as men and it's only a societal construct as to why they're different they're the two obviously polarizing extremes that i think you know the loudest people on the spectrum occupy and then yell at each other and a lot of people find a place along the continuum of where they sit and hillary was very good at directing me away from that very direct culture warry type of question but like i said i want to reconnect these worldviews and go where are people jumping off this this ship that academics seem to be steering around the differences between men and women so i sent her an email and i asked her the specific question how much of the difference between men and women is biological versus a social construct. Because I'm noticing one political side, generally the politically conservative side, says it's biological, men are meant to disconnect from their emotions, they're meant to be more violent and more assertive and more dominant, and they're, they're meant to occupy these roles because of those reasons that women are meant to be over here, because, it, and that's just evolution. Whereas the other camp would be saying a lot of these differences are made up through societal stories and constructs, and that is why these roles in society have developed just through culture and society so I asked her this exact question how much of the differences between men and women is biological versus a social construct and she emailed me back an awesome response and if you would like to hear that response then you can go to itisdigest.org gotcha I put the bait on the hook I threw it in the water and I just yank it I'm just yanking a few people hey come support the show I really appreciate it but she sent me back an email. If you'd like to hear it, it will be for the Super Friends in the private section there. I'll put it up in the private Facebook group we got going so everyone can read it for themselves. But I'm going to read it through right now. So, Super Friends, this is, this is what Hillary said. People don't change. They don't change. 